0: Uh, There's an interesting interview in World Magazine recently um, and a follow-up article put together by an author named Sophia Lee, and she was noting that a lot of pastors are struggling, particularly after the various shifts during the pandemic. People are leaving churches over pandemic restrictions, the election, racial injustice, political differences, and more. Many pastors are leaving ministry. And she was conducting an interview with a seasoned pastor. Some of you have read his works, heard his sermons. Tim Keller, he planted a church in the heart of New York City many, many years ago. And God has used him in significant ways. And she asked him as a veteran pastor, have you ever dealt with something like this during your ministry? Or is this something unique to our time today? How did you navigate the tricky political ideological waters? And listen to his response. He said to Sophia Lee, I'd say that the culture is definitely more polarized than it ever has been, and I've never seen the kind of conflicts in churches in the past that we see today. In virtually every church, there's a smaller or larger body of Christians who have been radicalized to the left or to the right by extremely effective and completely immersive internet and social media loops, news feeds, and communities. Now listen to this. People are bombarded 12 hours a day with pieces that present a particular political point of view and the main way it seeks to persuade is not through argument but through outrage. People are being formed. This is what really caught my attention. This sentence right here. People are being formed by this immersive form of public discourse far more than they are being formed by the church. Now, there's more I could read, but that really struck home in particular because we're taking four weeks and Matt and I partnering together uh, to, to develop this little sermon series for this first month of this new year on the Bride of Christ. And there's some really important truths that we trust God will cause to grow deep into our souls. And last week, Matt began by by reminding us that the church is precious to Jesus, bought with his blood. What a staggering price our redemption has come at. What value the Lord himself has assigned to the church. And today we're actually going to go to Ephesians 5, and we're going to continue to explore the love of Christ for his bride, uh, but I want you to notice something in particular, that that love translates into particular action on Christ's part with, a, with an end purpose in mind. And so I'd like to read Ephesians 5, and we're just going to read three verses this morning. But I, I don't want you to forget that point of Keller's, that people are being formed by this immersive form of public discourse far more than they are being formed by the church. And although he's making a little different point, I think there is something that happens by God's design in the context of church that will not happen anywhere else. And and we're going to explore some of that in Ephesians 5. So if your Bibles are open, you can look at verse 25. If you are new to Christianity or even... The Old Testament and New Testament, the, the book of Ephesians or the letter to the Ephesians is a New Testament book. It's a small one. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a first century church in a town called Ephesus. And he is saying some things right now to wives and husbands in particular, but there's a bigger point being made, and that's what we're going to focus on. So I'm not going to turn this into a, a, a message on marriage this morning. We're going to take a look at Christ and what he is doing for his beloved bride, the church. Pray with me once again. Let's pray for the Lord's help. Our God and Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the beautiful lines of scripture that have been tucked into the hymns and songs that we have just sung. Thank you for the powerful truth that from Genesis to Revelation reveals to us exactly who you are. It tells us of your great power, of your sovereign control over all things. It also tells us of your redemptive love. And as we explore this particular passage before us today and some additional references, oh, how we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to the truth. These things are spiritually discerned, your word says. So it's not a matter of academic discipline or of some kind of intellectual, uh, some IQ. Uh, we need, Lord God, the spirit to illuminate our minds that we may understand this truth. And then to move our wills, even as we seek to submit, move us to submission, Lord God, that we may obey everything that you command of us. And I pray that both our understanding and our obedient action would be united together in a a life um, that honors you. So bless us and use us in this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Did you notice the particular words that the Lord uh, uses to describe the action of Jesus? Some of you are trying to focus on that, maybe saying, what's in the background? It's a whole rack of wedding dresses. And I know that's less appealing to the men who are in the group today, but you know, guys, we need to be okay with the fact that Jesus uses the analogy of a bride to describe the church, all right? So just kind of swallow down that you know, man card that, you know, came up and was like, what, what are we, is this just for ladies? No, it's for all of us today, okay? But I want you to think in terms of how the love of Christ is being expressed here in this particular passage because as the precious blood-bought possession of Jesus, he uses passages like this to help us understand the power of his love. And he expresses that love, first of all, in our sanctification, Now, that's just a big theological word that speaks of a cleansing or a purifying or a hallowing. Uh, We looked at the Lord's Prayer just a few weeks ago, and this is all the work of Christ. And I think there are three particular uh, terms, really, that are used as synonyms, but just to fill out the complete work that Jesus is doing. And the first is this. We read it. He sanctifies his church. Now, he sacrificed himself for it. Paul makes a note of that in verse 25. He gave himself up for her, and the cross is chiefly in view. It's not merely a matter of inconvenience that Jesus went through to show his love to his bride. No, he laid down his life in the ultimate sacrifice. But out of that sacrifice, then verse 26 says, that he might sanctify her. So there's a purpose statement unfolding. He died in order to cleanse or render pure his bride sanctify is is a word that in other places is translated to hallow to make holy so a purified bride is the purpose of this sacrifice and the second term that you see there is the word cleansing he's that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word you know leprosy has long been one of the most dreaded diseases Uh, there are different forms of it now than in biblical times and it actually was a a more uh, it, it was a term that referred to more broader defilements and in the new testament context it really was a double defiling in one sense, a disease that had both physical and spiritual implications for those who suffered from it. For the physical contagion meant that you had to remove yourself from family and friends because it was a highly contagious disease. And so you are familiar with the fact that there were leper colonies, places outside of the normal communities and villages and towns where lepers would have to live their lives and seek to conduct business and and just survive. But in the Jewish context, there was also a spiritual defilement that came with leprosy. And that meant that the people were not only physically excluded from friends and family that they loved, but they were excluded from the life of of Israel. That meant they could not go to Sabbath worship at the synagogue. They could not go to Jerusalem for for the holy feast weeks that came around three times a year. They could not enjoy Uh, worship with family and friends, or those, those moments of profound celebration where the people of God came together. It's understandable that people came to think of it as a living death. Now, the term that Jesus is using here is a term that is used in other places to describe the cleansing of lepers. And it's interesting, if you do a little uh, quick study and survey of the Gospels, when Jesus encounters people who have physical illnesses, there's one term that's used for healing of a physical nature, and it could be applied to leprosy, but that's often not the term, most often. It's not the term that is applied to lepers. It's this particular term in front of us. I love the story that's included in Matthew 8. Verse 1 tells us that when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. There's there's our concept. And I love what Jesus does and says. And and you need to look at both parts of this because remember, in this context, it it was the leper's responsibility to to warn people of his presence, both for the physical contagion and for the spiritual contamination uh, that he could bring into a community. And so they they would walk the streets and they would cry, unclean, unclean. But Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. That is powerful. It should be to you as well because here is one who is not intimidated or put off by the deepest defilement a human being in that culture could actually be experiencing. He was not put off by the physical potential of being contaminated and more than that, he was not put off by the spiritual contamination that he was about to suffer. He reaches out his hand and touches the man. I wonder when the last time for this man anybody touched him would have been. We don't know. He'll have to tell us the rest of the story when we get to heaven one day and we, and we meet him and finally, like you're the guy. You're, you're the Matthew 8 leper? And he'll say, oh, let me tell you. What if it had been years that he had been dealing with this? Years since he had felt the embrace of a spouse or a parent or a child. Years since anybody had even come just into his presence and, and, and demonstrated an ease and uh, a comfort but Jesus closes the distance that this dread disease had created in his world, in his life, in his soul. And the first thing that Jesus does is to touch him. And then the second thing, if you look at the text with me and you're already there, notice what Jesus says. I am willing. Don't you love that? That's encouragement and comfort for those of us who deal with sins of various kinds, some of which you feel like, no, I'm totally defiled. I'll, I'll never be whole again. Like, I, I know I'm guilty and if God never spoke to me again, I would understand it. And if my family or my friends or my, you know, my boss never spoke to me again, I would totally understand it. But here is one who, for that weary soul in front of him, who may not have been able to remember the last time that somebody approached him, put out a hand to touch him, would have any desire to heal him, this one expresses it specifically and says, I am willing And then he goes on, as the scripture records, and I've put it in red for you there, be clean. And what Jesus does for this leper is exactly what he's doing for his bride in Ephesians 5. He's closing the distance that sin creates, overcoming even our fear and our suspicion that he might not be willing to take us to himself and clean us up. And he's saying to us in in very specific terms, I will cleanse you. What a savior. And then from there, Paul adds a third term. He sanctifies, he cleanses, he washes his church. Now, specifically, Paul says the washing of the water with the word. And if you start consulting commentaries, you'll see a number of them go the baptism direction. And there's reason for that. Some will say, I don't think it's chiefly baptism in view, I think it's actually a ceremony, a bridal ceremonial of, of preparation and cleansing. And, and there's good cause for that. And to to be honest, I, I don't think it's wrong to choose one over the other. I don't think it's wrong to kind of hold both loosely because it doesn't really specify what this water is other than it's a symbol of the real cleansing that the Lord brings us. And then the next phrase, though, is key, I think, to understanding it, with the word. That little preposition, with, tells you the means of this particular washing that's underway. It's the word. I think it's beautiful that the Lord Jesus is actually speaking to us as his bride. In Ephesians, the next chapter over, Paul will use that same terminology for word because it, there, there, there are a couple different Greek words that we translate in the English, into the English as word. This is not the most common one. It's common, but it's not the most common. And the most common you would expect would be the, the word Logos. I don't usually get hung up in this and don't want to bog it down. Because, and I never want you to think that there are secrets in the Greek language. There aren't. God's word is plain. I'm thankful there are scholars who know the Hebrew and Greek and a little bit of Aramaic, right, from Daniel, and can tell English-speaking people like us, here, here's what the word of God means. But there is a little terminology of a difference here that uh, it's the word "rema," which typically is a spoken word. So then commentators, you know, like, well, what is the spoken word? That's, is it Jesus speaking over us? Is it the word of testimony that, you know, someone gives at their baptism? And I, I don't think he really specifies that, but we can go to Ephesians 6 where he uses the same term, rhema, and he tells us in verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So I think one thing we can be sure of, it is God's word that Jesus is employing to wash us. And so while the language of the washing with water is, as one author writes, likely to have a a connotation of of that bridal uh, preparation and and the ceremonial bathing, uh, which would be a reflection of Jewish customs, there's a greater work going on, though, that Jesus is doing. And I think what is in view is how he uses the word in the life of every believer, both the the word we read, the word that we hear preached and taught, and it is, without a doubt, the word of the gospel. And so through the act of washing of the word, Jesus is transforming his bride. He's transforming the way we think. He's transforming the way we live. And that's why passages like Psalm 1 help us to understand the power of that word. And so when Matt read that portion earlier and you're hearing God contrast two different ways of living your life. And the first is the the way that ultimately leads to destruction and death. Because as the psalmist writes, the blessed one is not the one who walks in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Those are not people whose hearts have been regenerated and who are seeking him, but if you immerse yourself in that kind of context and in those people and the kinds of conversations that they're having uh, comprise the intake of information for your soul, you can see how that would form you into a different kind of person. And the stark contrast is that the blessed one is the one who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates in it day and night. That doesn't mean you cut yourself off from all other people. It just means that you say, this this is the main stream from which I will draw. Or 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where Paul writes to his young son in the faith, Timothy, who was pastor at the church at Ephesus, by the way, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And here's why. The very next phrase he goes on to say that the the man of God, and that it's used generically, that refers to ladies as well. That the people of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We're gonna return to the series in Romans, Lord willing, in the month of February. And in the very next section, we're gonna hear Paul exhort us, based on the mercies of God, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And the clear implication is that your mind is renewed as you submit it to God's truth, as you take his word in and you learn it and meditate on it and memorize it and put it into practice. So a question for all of us to consider at this point is, really, what are we being washed by? Because in reality, we're all being washed by something every day. You know, I, I read a little survey uh, some results from this, that according to the A.C. Nielsen Company, and this is a couple of years old now, but the average American watches more than four hours of TV each day. And you know, if you say, well, I don't watch that much, well, good for you, but how much do you watch? In a 65-year life, that person will have spent nine years just watching TV. There's another research uh, that actually Lifeway uh, conducted among Christians as to their Bible reading habits. Only 32% could say, I read my Bible every day. 27% said a few times a week, 12% said once a week, 11% just said a few times per month. I, I looked for specific information on how that would you know, translate into minutes or hours and couldn't actually find something that I felt comfortable with saying, like, Here, here's what it translates into. And I don't know that the same percentages of television watching, for instance, would be true for all of us. I suspect it's probably pretty close because we're average Americans, right? But if you're washing your heart and soul in secular entertainment for four hours a day and you're in the Word five, ten, fifteen minutes a day, what's really washing you? You can't swim in this bath for that many hours a week and then splash a little Bible on your face two, three, seven times a week and expect to be transformed into the way that the Lord really desires. It's really little wonder that many Christians are weak, untrained, undisciplined, worldly. Jesus is not interested in a bride who just kind of like gives him a tip of the hat or tip of the veil, to keep it in the bridal analogy. Oh, Jesus, thank you for saving us You know, looking forward to being with you at the end of my life, but until then, I'm going to live the way I want. No, he he wants you to be like him. Now, here's the beautiful part. We go back to... um, the passage and look at verse 27 because there's a second thought here that the love of Christ is not only expressed in our sanctification, he really is going to wash and cleanse and sanctify his bride. But he's doing this with a view of of a great day that's coming and we need to be mindful of it and prepare for it. Look at verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. I, I did a little quick count this week and I, I don't, this is not like credit for me. It's just a privilege that God's entrusted and the years of ministry accumulate, but I've participated in about 150 weddings as a pastor. I love weddings. I, from time to time, I hear pastors say, oh, I hate weddings and I hate funerals, and I think, sorry, like, get your heart right. Those are two of the most significant life events. Why wouldn't you want to, to participate in those? And yeah, sometimes they're inconvenient. When our kids were little, the high watermark and um, poor Kristen and poor kids, I did, I did 20 weddings in a 10-month stretch many, many years ago. Our kids actually reached a place where even as little ones, they were just assuming that Friday night, you know, dad would, and mom would be gone for rehearsal, rehearsal dinner, and they would just say, who's babysitting us Friday night? It wasn't, is someone babysitting? They just came to assume like it was going to happen. And that's a, that is a great privilege. And you know, wedding parties of all sizes and some fancy and some really simple and both brides and grooms of you know all backgrounds and sizes and shapes themselves. Everybody includes some common pieces in those ceremonies and services like vows and the exchange of rings. Some have music, some don't. Some have unity candles. Uh, some have unity braids and unity sand was a thing for a while. Uh, I was always interested to see, you know, what kind of novel ideas would come uh, into the wedding service at that point. But I've never yet participated in a, in a wedding where the bride left her personal preparation to her groom. You can't trust a groom with that stuff, ladies, can you? <laughs> like, he'd just tell you to wear any old thing, and he's like, oh, you look beautiful and makeup if you want to, but nah, let's just get married and go. No, every bride I've ever known has taken the responsibility and expense of purchasing a dress that in her eyes was perfect and, and doing her hair and makeup and nails and everything else necessary for her wedding day because she knew there was a moment coming where, where she would walk down an aisle and in a sense present herself to her groom, right? But did you hear in this passage how that, that's kind of reversed, isn't it? Jesus is the one who owns the responsibility to get you and me ready for that great day of presentation. Now, I still expect to see him, you know, meet his bride at the head of the aisle, as it were, but in one sense, picture this, the kind of cleansing and, 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 and sanctifying work that's going on here is with a view that he's working behind the scenes, and then he's going to bring us to that particular moment, so to speak, where, you know, we stand at the back of the church, and the door's open, and he's like, you're ready I'll meet you down front. And then we proceed into his presence and look at the description here. First of all, a church presented in all her splendor, a glorious bride. In all her glory is how the New American Standard translates this particular passage. I love the words of John Stott from his commentary on Ephesians. The church's true nature will become apparent on earth she is often in rags and tatters, stained and ugly, despised and persecuted. But one day she will be seen for what she is, nothing less than the bride of Christ, free from spots, wrinkles, or any other disfigurement, holy and without blemish, beautiful and glorious. That's where those next terms fill out what it means to uh, be a a, a glorious or splendid church. Think about this for a moment without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Spots have to do with blemishes. You know, whether it's your garment or your cheek, nobody wants a blemish show, showing up. Uh, that's a devastating thing, particularly for a bride on her wedding day. And wrinkles, uh, again, that could be wrinkles in garment, but probably more along the lines of wrinkles in your person. I got a kick out of this definition. A slight depression in the smoothness of the face caused by age. Yeah, I mean, it's true. And sometimes you look in the mirror and you're like, where did that come from? As the bride of Christ ages, she actually becomes more beautiful. So strong is the power of his work and so strong is the power of his washing with the water of the word. And it's all with a view, as Paul says here, that she might be holy and without blemish. Oh, what a, what a state this is. What a condition for us to look at that we would be people who in every way, morally, ritually, personally, are pure. That term without blemish is actually used to describe sacrifices in that Old Testament system, but more than that, it's actually used to to describe Christ himself. Peter uses that of Christ as God's sacrifice, the lamb without blemish. And you know, Jesus is working in you and me, so that that's exactly our state and condition. I quoted from that World Magazine uh, interview at the outset of of the message, I wanna go back to something else that Tim Keller has written in a book on marriage titled The Meaning of Marriage. Now he's applying this to Christian husbands and wives, but I think it captures the the power of what is really taking place here in Ephesians five. He's exhorting us to develop a Christian vision for marriage that includes this powerful work of Christ, but listen to what he says. Here's what it means to fall in love. in a a Christian context. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now, look at you. Each spouse should see the great thing that Jesus is doing in the life of their mate, through the word, the gospel. Each spouse should then give him or herself to be a vehicle for that work and envision the day that you will stand together before God, seeing each other presented in spotless beauty and glory. That's one of the distinguishing marks of a Christian marriage. All marriage is good, it's all blessed of God. God's happy for unbelievers as well as believers to get married, but the difference is for a Christian husband and Christian wife is that they understand this powerful work of sanctification and recognize that they are designed and even strategically placed by God to be instruments of that growth and beautification process, that washing that the Lord is doing. And I'll expand it beyond Christian marriage and that's part of what makes being a member of a church so precious where you are partnering with other people to be instruments of that kind of sanctifying change in their life and they too are instruments of that sanctifying change in your life. You see, it's not just gonna be Christian husbands who look at one another in glory one day and say, wow, look at you. I always knew you could be like this. We're all gonna have that joy. And, and I, I know we will know one another. Like, I don't think it's gonna be like, Kristen, my wife, Kristen? Like, you know, so, but at the same time, it would be like, wow, wow. What has Jesus done for us as his bride? Now, practically speaking, although Jesus takes the responsibility upon himself to prepare the bride, the bride. He also teaches us in 1 John 3, verse 3, everyone who has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. Um, Praise God for our justification. He has declared us to be holy. Sanctification is where he begins to work to say, I've given you that legal status and declared you to be holy. Sanctification is a process where he changes us until we are holy. And then we say, we've been glorified. Justification always results in sanctification, and sanctification always results in glorification. It's it's all bound together beautifully, but 1 John 3 says everyone who has that hope of of glory purifies himself, even as he is pure, so you're, you're already that legally, but functionally, day to day, we're not quite there, but we're gonna work at it. And so three things I want you to think about, even in the context of of brides and grooms do this kind of thing, and I want you to think in terms of diet, exercise, and rest. First of all, with respect to diet, what are you feeding your soul? Every one of us needs to evaluate the food sources for our soul. How much time do you actually spend per week surfing social media, internet news sources, and entertainment? Are you being formed by the larger culture right now that Keller spoke of in that that interview with World, or are you actually being formed by the word of God? Psalm 1 promises blessing to the one who delights in God's law day and night. Then I want you to think in terms of exercise. How are you active in the faith? Because you can eat the right stuff, but if you never get out of bed, never get off the couch, never stand up from your chair and and exercise, your physical body will not be strong. And God intends for you and me to exercise our faith. We exercise it in service. We exercise it in uh, the, the means of grace. Be studying the word of God is, is part of how we actually exercise our faith. Praying every day, both, praying, both alone and with others is a part of exercising our faith. Sharing the gospel with others. Practicing what you are learning. That is, you submit your heart and soul to what God says and then determine to go do it. Seeking fellowship with other believers. That's part of how you exercise your faith. So there are many ways that we can and should be active. And then finally, Rest. What is the meditation of your heart? God says he'll keep us in perfect peace as our minds are stayed on him. And and you can't give a little casual nod to the word of God, you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes in the morning, and then immerse your heart and mind the rest of the day in all the chaos of our world at the moment and really expect to be at peace. I get stirred up just like you. There, There are days where I'm like, You know what, I'm not trying to be an ostrich with my head in the sand, but it's not good for my heart today to watch news. Lord, I need your eternal, unchangeable word. One more thought, I didn't really know how to transition to this, but practically speaking, we need to be people who are in the word and also under the word. Now, in the word simply means like, read it for yourself, study it. And I know some of you are new believers and it just is intimidating and can be overwhelming. And uh, some of you have actually started reading through the Old Testament, and Genesis was great, and Exodus was pretty good, and then Leviticus just hammered you, and you're like, oh my word, what is this? Well, press on, and you know, God never says you have to read straight through from Genesis to Revelation. You should at some point. But that's why he gives us places like the Psalms. They're short, and they're sweet. They're rich in truth about God you will see David and other psalmists just pouring out their hearts and sometimes they're really upset even with God why do the wicked prosper I serve you they have all the money and influence they're having the good times and I'm suffering what's with that see that that gives you perspective for your soul the gospels if ever I get bogged down in my own reading I'll just flip over to the gospels Matthew Mark Luke, or John you can pick any one of them but those those to me are the most intimate uh, moments with Jesus. And I know Jesus is everywhere in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, but the Gospels are unique. So I'm a little bit of a pragmatist, if I can put it that way, when it comes to encouraging people to be in the word. You go to those places, it's a big book, it's rich, it's full, all kinds of genres uh, that you can choose from, but, but go hard after the Lord. Look for him. So you need to be in the word. Now when I say under the word, what does that mean? Well, part of what the Lord has designed for us is that we actually submit ourselves to the word as it's preached and taught. You're all here. In a sense, I'm preaching to the choir. But he has, he has designed times like this to wash you. This is part of how Jesus washes you, cleanses you, and prepares you for that day of presentation. Presentation. And I would submit to you that listening to good sermons online is not the same as being in a location like this, assembled with God's people. That's part of the reason that Hebrews 13 just tells us plainly, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Because Jesus is doing a powerful work in this context. And I, I suspect most of you believe that, but some of you may not be fully persuaded. Now really, practically speaking, even that picture there, I used this before, uh, 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 several weeks ago, but I want to bring you that. Do you see how that Bible is open and right in the middle it looks like a pencil and then to the left is a journal? I think it's really important for us to figure out ways not just to like, let our eyes move across the page but to capture things that stand out to us. For me, as for many of you, writing it down makes a difference. And I think you ought to be doing that privately when you're in the Word and I think we ought to be doing it here when we're under the Word and some of you do that week in and week out. It's part of the reason we leave blank lines on the in the door, out the door handout. It's not that we who preach or teach think every word we say is inspired. It's not in the same way that Scripture itself is inspired, but but this is a means that God has ordained for our good, for our cleansing, for getting ready for the great wedding day. And if you and I just wrote down one significant thought from our time in the Word each day, You do that for a lifetime and and you've not tallied up nine years of your life in front of the television. You've accumulated years in the word, under the word, being cleansed and prepared and it'll be great, great joy on that day when Jesus says it's time, I'll meet you at the front of the aisle. That's what's in view. So are you in the word? Are you under the word? This is in part how Jesus Loves his church. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, the love of Christ is astonishing. And I know for some, they struggle to believe that you really love them in this extraordinary way. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would affirm that in their hearts right now, that they would know they are more loved than they could ever fathom. And though their sin is great, and maybe they, like the leper, are uncertain as to your willingness to forgive and cleanse and restore. Oh, may they find that deep assurance that you are willing, that to touch them personally, to cleanse, to strengthen, to rescue is the joy of your heart. Would you do that? There are others of us, Lord, who've grown careless and we just need fresh motivation to be in the word, fresh motivation to discipline ourselves, fresh insight that we may savor the word and to that end we ask that you would calibrate the the taste buds of our soul. Forgive us for dishonoring you with forms of entertainment, with wasting precious moments that we ought to spend in other ways and we ask Lord that you would so tune our hearts to your heart that each moment of the day we, we would live as you, ought, as you desire and as we ought. Thank you for the good gifts that you have given to us. And I ask, Lord, that all of it would be set in its proper perspective. And then finally, I pray that you would continue that sanctifying, cleansing, washing work because a great day is coming and oh, how we long for it. Oh, Lord Jesus, how we long to see you as you are and to be made like you, that we may enter into the fullness of this relationship that you have initiated, that you've begun, that you will seal and secure. Wash us today. Cleanse us. Sanctify us. And oh, how we pray that even before the night could fall across this earth one more time, that you would return for your bride With the saints in the ages, we cry in faith and hope and longing, come, Lord Jesus, come. Thank you for your love. Let it control us and transform us. Let it dominate our lives in every way. So now, Father, as we conclude this service, I take the words of Paul, spoken to the saints that he loved at Ephesus so dearly, and in faith believe them, and appropriate them for gospel hope. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Amen.